Osiris. When lightning strikes, it doesn't have time to wait around for things like record release dates. In January of 1999, Lit was a young, scrappy Orange County band set to conquer the world. Their hook-heavy blend of punk energy and power-pop melody was right in tune with the times, as the pendulum swung decisively away from the gloomy roar of grunge towards something bright, bold, and fun. Punk pop was having its moment, as other SoCal bands like Blink-182 had already begun busting out nationwide. Lit's first album for RCA was set for release, and its first single was destined to define the band, the musical movement, and that moment in history. My Own Worst Enemy had it all. An almost impossibly infectious melody, a manic, minimalist, pile-driver of a guitar riff, relatable, tongue-in-cheek lyrics half-apologetically recounting a major morning-after mess, and a groove with the perfect balance of bounce and crunch that would have crowds pogoing like maniacs for generations to come. The smart money was on the song becoming a smash hit. While Lit and their label put all their ducks in a row in advance of the album release, plans were made for beginning the long climb to rock star status. Lit guitarist Jeremy Popoff remembers the rise being way more abrupt than anybody expected. Monday was like January 2nd, and they weren't supposed to go to radio till February, and the album wasn't supposed to come out till April. So we thought we were going to have like two or three weeks to just literally hang out with our friends and just relax and celebrate. Like, we got signed. We made a record. Fuck yeah, this is awesome. January 3rd, K-Rock started fucking playing it. K-R-O-Q-F-M. Good old K-Rock. They didn't ask any questions. They just said, oh, oh, we're playing it. And it moved the entire campaign up like three months. And we left home two weeks later. We never came back. Like it was, we thought we had a month. We had two days. And so when people were calling saying, dude, I just heard your song on K-Rock. No, you didn't. There's no way. It's not coming for another month. Then we're like, well, fuck, what if? I don't know, maybe. And so we were all just had it on in our houses. And the first time me and Al, we shared an apartment. We just had K-Rock on in the background. And we were just standing around, you know, shooting the shit, whatever. And all of a sudden it came on. And it was just, it was just like that thing you do. And we cranked it, opened the windows, ran around the building a couple times, just like, holy shit. And then reality kicked in. We are like, oh, time to go work. To make it even more like a scene out of a rock and roll movie, right around the same time, Lit's other half, Kevin Baldus and Jeremy's brother AJ, were having an almost identical experience. Kevin Baldus. I was with AJ. We went back to his house, and he had to check his answering machine. There was no cell phones. This is 1999. And his answering machine had a bunch of messages on it of people just saying, dude, I heard your song on the radio. And AJ and I are looking at each other like, wait, what? Yeah, K-Rock is playing your radio. Every message on the machine. So AJ ran over to the home stereo and turned it on, turned on K-Rock. Within one minute, My Own Worst Enemy came on K-Rock. And AJ and I tackled each other. Like literally tackled each other. It was such a crazy feeling to finally, after all these years... Dude, the amount of years we put into this band to finally get signed to RCA, to finally go into a real recording studio and really do it with a real producer and really 
do everything to finally do and achieve what our heroes have been doing for years, we finally heard our song on the radio, on, on the big station here in Los Angeles. We literally tackled each other. I don't know why we tackled each other. I don't know why we didn't just like fist pump or high five each other. We tackled each other on the floor. Like, what? What the fuck is going on? Like, it was such a magical moment and a magical time. And from that point on, you just didn't turn off K-Rock because they were pumping it once every 30 minutes. That song was like wildfire. It just was a match in the dry forest. Foosh! Everywhere. Roundhill Music presents My Own Worst Enemy. So, how did it all happen? The truth is that the ball began rolling even earlier than that. And, like most of the crucial moments in Litt's early career, their manager, Ruta Sepetis, had a lot to do with it. This was a time in the music business that, and of course, payola still exists, right? But that was the norm. You know, you pay to play. And you, you see the, the charts and you're like, okay, well, you know, who's paying for that? I decided that it would discredit Litt as human beings and as songwriters to use payola. I was so convinced that this song was a hit that, oh my gosh, I'm so embarrassed thinking back to myself in these meetings, like in conference rooms, forbidding them to use payola. So we're there with label executives and we're strategizing about, you know, how we're going to break this song and how we're going to break this band. And the band wasn't in the room. You know, this was like, you know, meeting of the minds and blah, blah. And I argued against that. I said, you can't talk about how to break this band without them in the room. And they said, well, we'll tell you our ideas and then you can you know, take them back to the band. And fortunately, the people at RCA, they were really great. And many of them were exactly on the same page. But of course, there's always a couple people who have these ideas. And when radio promotion came up, I said, the song is a hit. You're not going to pay anybody. And they said, well, what do you want us to do? I said, I want you to call the station and tell them that they are going to be one of the stations who's getting the song early and just play it and then see what happens. And I remember the radio guy was like, well, that's so naive. Well, they sent the demo to St. Louis and the station in St. Louis started playing the demo. I think it was the point in St. Louis. They were the first station to begin playing My Own Worst Enemy. But then you have to decide, wait a minute, this has a groundswell. Do we, do we roll with this? And for me, it was such a victory because I thought we're not we're not paying for this. Like this is the band's first single and I don't want their career launched on payola. Let it be real. Former RCA label executive Bruce Floor. Ruta Sepetis was an amazing manager, like detailed as fuck in a business where everybody was loosey-goosey. She managed Lit and Joe Satriani and she was businesslike and focused. I would have trusted her with any one of my artists. Without Ruta, this ain't happening. As soon as the official recording was actually in RCA's hands, Floor took things to the next level. At the time, Lisa Warden was the music director at legendary Los Angeles radio station K-Rock. Yeah, that song was definitely lightning in a bottle, for sure. I remember the record label, and it was RCA at the time, playing it 
for me, Bruce Floor brought the record into K-Rock. And I'm like, one listen, holy shit, walked it into Kevin Weatherly's office. I'm like, you got to hear this. He heard it, was like, holy shit. And then we walked it on the air and that was it. Like the, that's one of those, you just, you don't even need to overthink. You don't need to think about it. You don't need to hear it 10 times in a row. You just go, this is catchy as shit, lyrically relevant. The sound is exactly what's going on right now. No brainer, it's going on the air. And, and it did, it reacted. And it, back then, you know, people would call in Phones were a big deal on gauging if something was hot or not. And yeah, the phones on that record blew up immediately. And it was just a hit right out of the gate. It really was. People put the song on not knowing. There's a little bit of a do me a favor and play this, but that's all you needed. Because the minute that guitar riff kicked in back in the day, the phones lit up. The people just reacted. What is this? K-Rock was the most influential rock radio station in Los Angeles, and, in some people's mind, the only station in America that mattered. So, when they put My Own Worst Enemy into heavy rotation, the dominoes started falling all across the country. It was more like the mid-90s when that reputation started to happen. If K-Rock added your record, the rest of the country would then start to add your record. Literally an ad at K-Rock could mean an ad everywhere else. Former K-Rock DJ, Ted Stryker. I was right there when it went from a few people know of this song to just becoming a huge, massive smash that summer of 1999. Like I was in full force behind this band. I remember it going from it being played a little bit, you know, let's just get this out there to just being blasted. I mean, it must have been played every uh, hour and 45 minutes to two and a half hours. You would hear lit my own worst enemy. The album, A Place in the Sun, was released on February 23rd. It went gold by June and platinum in October. In April, my own worst enemy hit the top spot on Billboard's modern rock chart and stayed there for 11 weeks. By then, the band had already been launched into action, hitting the road in support of the record. They start playing the song and it goes nuts. And of course, many people would think, wow, so you you jump in a tour bus and oh my good. <laughs> no, I went to Bank of America and took cash out of the ATM and handed them an envelope and they got in an RV and left. But that moment of working so hard for something and having it come genuinely and earning it. And that moment then when the wind is at your back, it's indescribable. And the guys drove off in that RV and the wind was blowing. I mean, it was incredible. From the inside of that RV, the sudden rush of success felt surreal, especially as it increased on an exponential level. We got a phone call one day from our management saying, hey, you guys are going out on tour with Offspring and you're doing sheds across America. Like, what? You mean all those shed shows we went to when we were kids and even up to last year? You mean up to the last couple months? I'm going to now be on the other side. I'm no longer going to have a ticket in the seat. I'm now going to have a backstage pass, and I'm going to be performing on stage. This is going to be awesome. Yeah, so we get that phone call, and we're excited. We love Offspring, and they're local heroes. They're killer. And now we're going to be sharing a stage with them all summer long and in Europe. So 
we then got a phone call within probably two to three days of getting that phone call. You guys have just been invited to play Woodstock. We had the number one song in the country, you know, for the entire summer, and we were driving ourselves in a Winnebago. So we were pulling up to massive radio festivals and Woodstock. We're pulling up to these big things like, and we're just like pulling up, and it's one of us driving or T-Bone, and uh, we had a Jägermeister tap machine in there, which meant that all the other bands and all the other Prevos would come over to our Winnebago so they could get a cold shot of Jaeger out of our tap machine. But at the time, we didn't know better, and, and we were just so grateful, and we were hell-bent, too, on we didn't want to take $1 of tour support. We were just like, we'll fucking get a bus when we can afford a bus. Like, right now, we got it. Having signed Lit to a publishing deal before RCA ever entered the picture, Matt Messer was reveling in all the attention suddenly being showered on a band that just months earlier was basically unknown outside of Orange County. I'm sure for them, it must have just been a blur of tour to tour to MTV Beach House to TRL to, you know, the next tour to going out and doing an award show. And they were nonstop. The demand for them was 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 very high. They'd come home and you know, it was like, all right, we're going to do it all over again. At the time, the holy trinity that labels relied on for breaking a band was radio, CD sales, and MTV exposure. And when my own worst enemy exploded on all three fronts, the song became almost unavoidable. After it was a hit, you couldn't escape it. You turn on K-Rock and My Own Worst Enemy was on. You turn on MTV, the video for My Own Worst Enemy is on. All the radio stations were owned by like two or three companies. So if you got added to K-Rock, you got added to 30 other stations across the country. And if the song reacted, that was it. You had a great video, you were on MTV, and everybody was tuned into a handful of outlets. Um, it wasn't as fractured as it is now. If you were a music fan, you were watching MTV, and that video was all over MTV. So just that critical mass where everything is just rising at the same time, you don't really get that anymore. But that's what happened. Media research consultant Jay Nackless. The magnitude of MTV can't be understated at all because one of the big effects that it had on music was brand building for artists. And so, you know, whereas you might have heard a song and you didn't really know much about the artist, you might have known the name of the artist, you were never really exposed to what they looked like and what they were all about. And MTV brought that to you. Guitarist Kevin Wasserman, better known as Noodles, had already been through the process with Orange County OG's The Offspring. MTV was huge at the time as well, and and Lit had a great video for that song for My Own Worst Enemy. Uh, it's they they come across as just funny, you know. The song's great, uh, you know, good looking guys, you know. Uh, they they put out a great video for that, so you, you get a good video and and you come across looking all right and you could do real well for sure. And on top of radio and everything else. 
It's seeing the video at the same time, hearing the song at the same time, hearing the interview about it at the same time, seeing the performance on the Grammys at the same time. That's the machine together that makes something a hit, not just one thing, all the things. If a band is putting out a new song, uh, you want to make sure that they have everything lined up. So if and when it hits, you're ready to go. Is the tour set up? Yes, it is. Are you going to be opening for a huge band because you're a baby band? We have that lined up. Yes, we do. MTV liked the video. They like that as well. K-Rock loves the song, or at least it's going to be on a specialty show. It's going to be a bonus track here. After a break, Enemy's popularity takes on a life of its own, and eventually, forces beyond their control bring Lit back down to Earth. Another major piece of the puzzle at the time was the festival circuit, and for a late 90s band coming from the harder side, nothing made a bigger impact than the annual Warped Tour. Kevin Lyman created the Warped Tour in 1995, with punk as its driving force. By the time Lit entered the picture, the tour wasn't just a rung on the ladder, it was a ladder all its own. Warped Tour founder, Kevin Lyman. It was that transition moment, and you know, you go back and look at the number of albums that went platinum during that period of those pop-punk bands, and, or very, had very strong anthems almost of that era. And the songs would tend to coordinate a little bit with the labels and managers and people around the releases of those albums using Warp Tour as a platform. And it was a time when there was still radio out there <laughs> that could be a driver. People were still buying CDs. <laughs> you know? So it was one of those things where if it all started kicking all at once, you know, you spun this into it benefited me as the Warp Tour and it also benefited the artist, because they were exposing themselves to large crowds, you know, uh, maybe these bands on their own were worth maybe thousand tickets, maybe 800 tickets. But that was a big era for the Warp Tour. We we're averaging over you know, 15,000 to 20,000 people on a show. In the 90s, right, festivals were so big. But the touring festival that was big in the 90s really, really did help that marketing machine to get those bands out there together as a collective. Ben Osmondson was playing bass with Zebrahead who had started out in the Orange County trenches with Lit. We were on that first warp Tour that they did also, and that's when their song was like blowing up. It was funny because they were selling so many records at the time. I know there were a lot of jokes about, about how many albums they were selling because, I mean, basically they were selling probably more than the entire tour combined. Lit frontman AJ Popoff. We love those bands. We love the warp Tour, and like they were all making fun of us. Like They were calling us SoundScan. What's up, SoundScan? record sales they calculate it with SoundScan, and so we're like well man all right well let's go do a couple shots of jaeger like we're here and we wanted you know we're a part of this we were excited and they were just tripping out because like oh man we're a punk rock tour and you guys are like on the radio i i don't think it was anything malicious in the long term but these kids were all young they were super young and all of a sudden they went from playing these small clubs to these bigger shows and the, and those records would move quick once if it gets going and and a machine gets behind them, all of a sudden it's like so there's a little bit of jelly because maybe theirs wasn't getting quite the attention they had hoped for, but it wasn't like a bad thing. I, I just think it was a little internal competition amongst that scene in some ways. But the sudden ubiquity that Lit was experiencing was deceiving. In fact, Lit was the furthest thing possible from an overnight success story. 
it didn't happen overnight. I have to stress that these guys had been working for a decade, more than a decade. And so it wasn't an overnight success an overnight sensation. And a, a real moment for me was when they took the stage at Madison Square Garden and just tore it apart. I mean, and the pyro and lights and the whole, and to me, I get like choked up. I mean, from a garage, like, and to know that they earned it, like it was the best. <laughs> I think that the perception for a lot of probably fans, people that didn't know them was that like this band came out of nowhere, that they were like this overnight sensation, not knowing the 10 years that they had really, really dedicated themselves and put into getting to that point so that when the song did become a hit, they were ready to hit the ground running. They were firing on all cylinders. So it wasn't like we had to figure it out while we're on the fly. Like they were ready for it. Jeremy and AJ, I think back when they were 12 years old, probably went into their bedroom and Frankenstein this band and said, what would be the ultimate band that we could ever create that would just have everything we ever loved from what the logo looked like to what the sound looked like, to what they were wearing on stage. And it wasn't like a character. That's just who they were, but they were strategic. That's the other thing about Lit. They were strategic. And when you're dealing with a bunch of young rock dudes playing rock and roll, strategy usually doesn't come into play. It's usually luck and partying. And they were just, they were smart. But there was one pocket of fans who knew the band's true backstory the hometown crowd that supported Lit from the very start. We were selling out clubs in the area, in the Orange County, L.A. area. So people knew who Lit was. So now, when we walked around, friends and, and local fans were proud, very proud of us, that we were something they believed in ahead of time. And now there was a payoff to their early beliefs, you know? And a lot of the same people went to our shows for 10 years. Seriously. Dude, the planets aligned. It was like God himself said, all right, guys, you've been at this a long time. I'm going to give you this one. Here you go. It was lightning in a bottle. For about the next two years, Lit was in constant motion supporting A Place in the Sun, with My Own Worst Enemy as their highly combustible calling card. Wherever they went, it was the not-so-secret weapon that never failed. Noodles clearly remembers bringing Lit out on tour with The Offspring. It was amazing. Yeah, the crowds went off night after night. And, you know, I think we were on stage most nights watching Lit, and they were on stage most nights watching us. Um, we did a lot of sheds, they call them the amphitheaters, you know, so it'd be like ten to 15,000 seat venues. And the crowd was into them the whole time. They put on a really good show. But yeah, I mean, you could hear once that song came on, they go, okay, yeah, this is extra for sure. Um, and, and it would go off for them every night. But but they also, I want to say, they, they never lost the crowd. They, they came out and put on a good show, you know, every night, even if they were playing songs that the audience wasn't that familiar with. But yeah, of course, once you go into the song that, that everybody knows, it's like, oh man, the crowd's going off for sure. Yeah, huge. At the same time, the band was enjoying all the perks that came with their success. After all the long, hard years of slugging it out, they were finally reaping the rewards of rock stardom. I just remember being there and walking by and like 
they would play the CeeLo game with dice and watching Jeremy gamble with like the guys from Pennywise and other people like that. And I'm like, oh man, like you're betting way more money than I've ever even had in my life right now on rolling dice. Like things are changing for you guys. The album takes off. We're going on tour with a bunch of bands. We did party, obviously, but we were also so busy touring, interviews, in-person, radio interviews, photo shoots. We were so busy at the time, you really had to be careful about going too far. Not to say that we didn't go too far, because there were times during A Place in the Sun, we, in a lot of people's eyes, we probably did go too far, you know? But that was part of the fun of it, man. We were finally living our fantasy, our dream, you know? And we were, we got to act like Led Zeppelin and Van Halen. And who was going to tell us no, you know? TVs and lamps got thrown out of the riot house onto Sunset Boulevard because we wanted to be Led Zeppelin. Fuck it. Why not? Do we put in the time? We put in 10 years of our life. Dude, we were at college for 10 years and finally graduated. And here's your diploma. Go have fun. And we did. And we absolutely did. But as undeniable and inescapable as my own worst enemy was, it was far from the only thing that Lit had to offer at the time. Singles like Ziploc and Miserable were just as infectious and exciting. And in the wake of the album's monster hit, they went to number 11 and number 3 respectively on the modern rock charts. The level of success those two songs achieved would have been a reason for most bands to break out the champagne and celebrate a career milestone. But for Lit, the funny thing was that in the shadow of a blockbuster like My Own Worst Enemy, the trajectory of those singles almost seemed like an afterthought. The band had arrived at a slippery slope where the mega success of their breakout hit might be hurting their chances for a follow-up. We couldn't just not put a song out, but radio was still playing the fuck out of Enemy. So whatever we put out next was not going to beat Enemy. Just it was impossible. So we had to put something out, but it had to be good so people didn't write us off as like a one-hit wonder. When it was time for Lit to release their next album, 2001's Atomic, that feeling became all the more palpable, and it would only increase with each subsequent album. I'm thinking to myself, is my own worst enemy a self-fulfilling prophecy for Lit? A lot of artists would kill to have a hit as big as my own worst enemy. And at the same time, it can be your own worst enemy because... Once you have a huge hit, it's very hard to get other songs to to get other songs off the ground. It was the elephant in the room for Atomic, self-titled, View from the Bottom, These Are the Days, you know, it was always there. We just got to ignore it and do what we did when we wrote A Place in the Sun. We just got to be us. We just got to go with our gut and we just got to write songs and let it be what it's going to be. Atomic did give Lit another top 10 modern rock hit with Lipstick and Bruises. But after that, in commercial terms, it was a case of diminishing returns, even though the band never dropped the ball artistically. Regardless, Lit never let up. The same work ethic that got them where they were continued to keep them going. And wherever they went, the crowds kept eating it up. This is what you always want. 
My biggest surprise is that the follow-up record didn't have as much success as it should. I personally thought the follow-up record was a better album than the first one. I thought we had cracked the code. I think these guys are underrated as songwriters. I know everyone knows my own worst enemy, but they have so many songs that are so well written. And I don't know if my own worst enemy was too big that people didn't give all these other songs a chance, especially from their officially, I guess it would be that third album. But they're really, really, really good songwriters. The song became so big and was everywhere, despite having two more top 10 singles from A Place in the Sun, those songs could never get out of the shadow of My Own Worst Enemy. It was such a big song that even, you know, 11 weeks at number one, now RCA is like, all right, we gotta feed the beast and we gotta move on to the next single at some point. And radio wouldn't stop playing My Own Worst Enemy. So they come with, with Miserable and Ziploc and those songs did well, but if a station's only gonna be playing one lit song, they're gonna be playing My Own Worst Enemy. Music journalist Stephen Hyden. It is a double-edged sword, you know, having a song that helps define a time because it is such a rare achievement to do that. But the downside is that you define a specific time and time moves on. And what happens when you, know, you want to move with the time, but people just want to hold you in amber in this one moment in their lives? When you are put in people's faces in the way that bands could be put in people's faces in the 90s, it defines you in their minds in a way that you can't really control. You know, you can't be the band that people just get to discover because their friend told you about them, you know? It's interesting because, like, Elvis Costello obviously has had a great career and he's a brilliant songwriter, but he doesn't have a My Own Worst Enemy in his career. There's no song that he had that was on the radio 24-7 for a period of time. And in many ways, you could say that was to his benefit because you can listen to Elvis Costello now and he doesn't seem like he's part of an era. He just seems like he's a great songwriter and... But on the other hand, you know, there's people out there, probably many more people, who know My Own Worst Enemy and don't know any Elvis Costello songs. And when they're having a barbecue with their friends, My Own Worst Enemy is going to be on their barbecue playlist and they're going to rock out to it and they're going to love it. And it's going to evoke memories for those people that mean a lot to them. And it's, it's embedded in their lives. Butch Walker produced Lit's 2012 album, A View from the Bottom, which, despite its finely tuned songwriting and stellar production, didn't crack the top 200 albums chart. It's the timing, it's the time frame of where society is at that, that hour, that week, that year. There's a lot of factors involved that make it really hard to just have a part two. When Atomic was released... Lit's timing couldn't have been much worse. Hit songwriter Sam Hollander remembers how the musical climate changed right after one of America's most heartbreaking tragedies. When you create magic like that first single, and I will stand by Ziploc as a second, 
it's so hard to do it again and again. And the worst part, I think, was that it was 99 and it was a new decade was about to be birthed, right? And when you unearth it and you're heading into the millennium and there was so much weird duress and this bleak feeling that we were headed towards something crazy, then September 11th happens. And for a while, the world went mad and I'm sure tonally things changed. It's like the world had changed. Atomic was recorded in 2000, and its October 2001 release date was obviously arranged well in advance of 9-11. But when it arrived weeks after the devastating national trauma, with an opening sound effect like a cross between a plane taking a nosedive and a bomb being dropped, that was actually the least of the problems that Lit was facing. I think the thing with the 90s, we look back on it and it seems like almost like the 50s in a way that it was this economically robust, you know, time of peace. It seemed like things were really great. In retrospect, it was the ideal era for a band like Lit, whose music was basically built for having a raucous bash, driving your car onto the front lawn, coming in through the window, and then living to laugh about it all, just like in the song. After the horrific events of 9-11, that happy-go-lucky sound suddenly wasn't what America wanted anymore. The country was hurting, and it needed music more as tea and sympathy for the soul than as a soundtrack to Saturday Night Mayhem. The soothing sounds of Nora Jones were in, and the good-time pop-punk, power-pop, or whatever you want to call it, was out. The temperature in the country at that point, it had changed. After 9-11, the focus had shifted, and that was palpable. And, you know, good time, like fun, rock. People, People were looking to be more, I think, introspective. As if battling a vast cultural sea change wasn't enough, to add insult to injury, a technical glitch connected to Atomic's release created a commercial catastrophe that could have killed the career of almost any artist. There was a coding error on the part of the record company that when they priced the album, instead of it being $14.99, there was a coding error and all the stickers said $24.99 nationwide. The album is released and we all believe that Atomic is a a stronger record than, than A Place in the Sun. We had listening parties. Everyone's, you know, freaking out. The record comes out, and instead of being $14.99, it was $24.99. First week sales are not what we expected them to be. Well, of course not. Who can afford $24.99? And people were waiting and saying, wait a minute. And the office was flooded with calls. Um, Why is this record $24.99? Is there something special about this? And I remember speaking to RCA about it and they even said, they said, this is, this is, take 9-11 out of it. How do we go back to every single retailer and have them change the price? Being the scrappers that they were, Lit kept on swinging, but there was too much working against them. The turbocharged momentum they'd been building up for the last few years did a major 180 
and left the band in a kind of pop-punk purgatory. Atomic would be their last major label album, and the Billboard charts would soon become a no-fly zone. The band never quit working, or for that matter, evolving. But after the sea change of the early aughts, they did it mostly under the mainstream radar. They could very well have fallen through the cracks of pop culture completely. But in an ironic twist worthy of a 19th century Russian novel, the very thing that nearly knocked all the water out of the pool was exactly what kept them afloat. The hit that refused to die. Next on My Own Worst Enemy, the anatomy of a hit and the many ways My Own Worst Enemy has become permanently woven into the fabric of American pop culture. Timing, luck, the right people, all those things come into play. It's like Bach, basically. It's a reactionary riff. This is a universal idea. That's the ultimate first line. Everybody knows every freaking word. Everybody goes, oh! My Own Worst Enemy was produced for Roundhill Music by Osiris Media. For Roundhill, Joe Calitri is president of Roundhill Records, Lucy Bartosi is the senior director of marketing, and Imani Giverts is the digital content manager. For Lit, the executive producer is Dave Rose, president of Deep South Entertainment. The members of Lit are AJ Popoff, Jeremy Popoff, Kevin Baldus, Taylor Carroll, and Alan Schellenberger in memoriam. For Osiris Media, the executive producers are Brad Stratton and Kirsten Cluthy. All interviews were conducted by Brad Stratton, and the script was written by Jim Allen. My Own Worst Enemy was edited, mixed, and narrated by Brad Stratton. To learn more about Lit and receive news and updates about their upcoming album and live appearances, please follow them on Facebook and Instagram at LitBandOfficial, or on their website, LitBand.com. Osiris.